it's kind of funny when we say it out loud because you're like, oh, turns out you just needed to do a ton of it. That's that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. And experimentation into other methods. And I like what you said there because one, I think you mentioned like what is something that I, I see as a weakness often or maybe a stumbling point in artists, uh, in some of the artists I see. And a big one is there's such a, a focus on trying to get a style or cohesive look. You're listening to Art and Magic, and I'm your host, Devin Walls. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the show. I have a conversation in store for you today that I have truly wanted to bring you for a very long time. Uh, But before we get into that, I do just have one show announcement, and that is that It is officially the month of June, which means that the Patreon-exclusive bonus episode for the month just came out last week. This month's bonus episode is a really good one. I had a super juicy conversation with abstract painter Sarah Schroeder. We talked about how she made such a quick rise on Instagram. Um, She had a lot of clarity on what has attributed to her success. Her story is a little bit unique in that she took off so quickly. And so I really kind of wanted to crack the code on how that happened. We also talked about how she's using the platform now, um, what's working for her with the algorithm and consistency, and the changes that she's made to her art business this past year. So all things selling and boundaries and being choosy about projects. And she also reveals some top secret intel on what she's going to be working on next, which is totally new and different and she hasn't shared anywhere else. So you can listen to that episode and all of the past bonus episodes by heading over to the Patreon, which is with the link in the show notes. Okay, so let's talk about what I have in store for you today. Today's conversation is with artist consultant Penny Lane Shen, and I am so honored to have her on the show. Okay, so I'm going to gush all about Penny Lane for just a second here. She is such a rare find. You know, I was really looking for somebody who could give me objective feedback on my work, who could meet me where I'm at, and help me achieve my goals, both in the studio and out of the studio. Um, And she's so knowledgeable and has real art world experience, and yet she isn't an artist herself. So she really comes in with this kind of unbiased yet very helpful perspective. Um, And I think what she does really fits in with the ethos of this show in that she really is a true support person for artists. So all that being said, it was so much fun to get to have her on the show and just ask her whatever I wanted um, and then also kind of highlight a lot of the knowledge that she's imparted to me in our sessions and kind of give that to you guys to be able to digest as well. So we get into all things how to strengthen your artwork, and that um, goes down many avenues. She has a lot to say about that, how to create substance in your work and kind of make it long lasting and give it meaning. We talk about um, the ebbs and flows of experimentation and how to know if you're being too rigid or if you're going too far out. And then we talk about preferred avenues for selling your work, You know how you might discern whether it's best for you to sell your work yourself or with a gallery um, or many of the paths in between. I think this is a question I know I have, and she had some really great answers uh, so that you can kind of check in with yourself and see what your goals are and what might work best for you. 
So if you don't already know her, Penny Lane Shen is an artist consultant, curator, and educator. Since 2006, her company Dazed and Confucius has offered personalized consultations, group workshops, and business development with regular seminars held worldwide. Artist consultants Penny Lane and David advise over 1,000 artists each year. With a variety of services catered to the fine artist, Dazed and Confucius has quickly become the one-stop shop for artists navigating the fine art industry. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Penny Lane Shen. Well, to get started, um, could you just give us a little bit of background on what you do and what you help artists with? Sure. Um, So I run a business called Dazed and Confucius, and we are basically a consulting business for fine artists, mid-career, emerging, and some established as well. Um, I like to think of us as sort of a one-stop shop for artists looking to um, grow their business, um, work on their practice, if they're looking to develop a concept or project, um, and then just really nuts and bolts kinds of things like um, writing their artist statement, getting help with their CV, figuring out pricing, applying to a grant, or um, building a website. So yeah, that's what Days and Confucius does. For myself, I come from the gallery world. Um, I, my first, my earliest jobs were in galleries and then continued to grow as it always does when you work somewhere, you know, you, there's a better chance that you're going to get a job in the same field. And so you climb the ladder and that's exactly what I did. Um, climbed the ladder and uh, worked in commercial and academic galleries. And then during that time, I was also teaching and uh, folks would come into the galleries all the time and apply um, and just basically do it completely the wrong way. Right. And I would very gently kind of just tell them, oh, you know, maybe you want to work on this or next time when you go down, when you go down the street and ask the next gallery, perhaps do this first. And then I just sort of started getting requests for, oh, you know, is there somewhere that I could learn all this stuff? And then, so I started to run uh, like annual seminars for it. And then I started teaching it um, at the college here. Um, And that kind of just grew into one-on-one consultations. I started to do those in the evenings, on weekends, on the side. And I kind of found like it was it was taking up as much time as my full time job in the gallery. And frankly, I, I liked it a lot more. So about six years ago, um, I made it into like an official business. And now we have a number of other consultants and employees at the business um, doing the same thing. So we're we're a tight little family, but um, we're busy and it's going great. Yeah. Um, well, I am so glad that you made that career shift because I have greatly benefited from my work with you. And I really think it's such a, such a generous service you're providing because I know that artists, like, as you know, probably from the fact that you were getting so many questions and requests, it's like, we need a little bit of guidance. It's really hard to navigate. It's hard to make the art and navigate everything on your own. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I find that 
you know, for me, I think this was again, you know, 15 years ago, it was a long time ago now when it was first sort of starting up. Um, it was surprising to me to be like, oh, they didn't teach you this in art school. Um, at the same time, I went to art school, they didn't teach me that. So I guess it wasn't, wasn't that shouldn't have been that surprising. Um, and now I think that that might be kind of changing a little bit. However, art school is generally like quite strongly, I don't know, against the sales of artwork. This is just like a kind of a stereotype slash well-known fact. So things like pricing and figuring out your audience and social media sales and all that stuff is something that they just, they don't teach you. And, and for good reason, they're trying to focus on the artwork, right? Um, but somebody's got to. Mm -hmm. And I did find that because I had that art background, but wasn't an artist and worked on the other end, which was um, our representation and sales marketing, that that really helped with a, with a good sort of level-headed balance that I could come um, at it with and the kind of advice I could give. So it wasn't so swayed like, oh, I'm an artist and this is what works for me um, mm -hmm. to sell my type of artwork. And at the same time, it wasn't so uninformed like, oh, I've never made artwork in my life. I have no idea what these materials really are. I don't know the struggle, um, but I know how to sell it. So let me tell you about that. So I, I do think it kind of helped to have both perspectives, like the art background and also the sales uh, representation industry background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you feel that I think in your sessions, I've felt that where it's like, I feel that you're informed, but not so heavily biased because when mm -hmm. I talk to a lot of my artist friends, which has value in its own right, um, like your feedback is going to be swayed by your preferences. Yes. And I think that you give very like on point kind of like objective advice and feedback. And so I kind of actually want to just dive right into some of your perspectives and Let's dive right tips in. and resources and advice. So the first thing I kind of want to talk about is just what you think, and this is a very open-ended question and might be sure. difficult to answer, but what you think makes for really strong artwork in general um, and where do you see your artist clients might have the most room for improvement in terms of making their work as strong as it can be? Yeah. So that, that is always a tough question for me to answer just because um, with, I, I feel like there's so many different aspects that can be considered really strong artwork. Mm -hmm. um, however, I will say this, that I think that the easy answer is to say uniqueness, like, mm. oh, you know, you it's one of a kind and unique and it's something that I've never seen before, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not going to say that because although uniqueness is something to be, you know, something to strive for and uh, admirable, admirable quality, I think that it's kind of overrated. And so don't think that you're going to break the mold by doing something something he has never done before. That's only madness that way comes. Like, don't try to do that, I wouldn't say. So, and I do find that often artists are kind of paralyzed by trying to do something brand new and unique. It's never going to happen. Instead, I think strong artwork shows dedication. Like, it shows um, that you've chosen this and that you've honed your practice and somebody else might do something similar out there, but you don't care because this is your thing and, and you're going to chip away at it and work at it and grow it until it becomes something more. Mm. So I guess it's the kind of combination between dedication and awareness, just being self-aware 
and uh, you know, as the kids say, woke. Do kids still say that? <laughs> You're a young. I don't person, even know. Though. I don't feel that. I don't feel young enough to say woke, although I'm young enough to have heard it. So okay, <laughs> I, don't <know> <laughs> I don't know what that says about my age, but <laughs> yeah. Um. So and woke enough to know uh what's out there. So like a kind of mm. combination of both, uh, knowing yourself, knowing what's out there and, and working at it. Mm. That's, yeah, I hope that sort of answers that question. Yeah, it does. And I have some follow-ups. Yes, um, please. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's just stay with this dedication piece for a second sure. because I love that answer. I'm wondering in a practical sense what that might look like in someone's artwork? Does that look like they've really put in the time to hone their craft? Is that how that might translate? Like quality It translates skill? like that, but if I'm able to peek behind the scenes, I see that I can see the actual physical stuff, like the trial and errors, the studies, mm. all that stuff. So in a practical sense, it means production okay. and being prolific and having, you know, if I can actually physically see the timeline of when something was weaker and then became stronger, that's dedication, I think. Okay. Trial and error and scraps of this and that and working out colors and ones that didn't work, seeing all of that, seeing process. Yeah. Yeah. And an awareness part is kind of comes out in different ways. It comes out in like talking with an artist. It comes out in looking at reading things about things that they've written, uh, references that they've mentioned, like all of that shows an understanding of um, if they're, you know, woke or not, I suppose. And if they know the canon that they're in and the people who have come before and people who are working in their current canon and possibly the people that are coming after. And I'm, I'm saying people, but it doesn't have to be people. It can be concepts, ideologies, discourse that, that they're in, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, kind of finding through lines in their work. So seeing patterns, seeing repetition, seeing recurring themes, that, that kind of is the, uh, what it actually visually looks, looks like. And I appreciate that question because, you know, we can talk abstractly all the time and I'm like, Oh God, you know, hard work and dedication. That's what it takes. But what does that actually look like is, uh, is another story. So good question. Yeah. Well, I love like, how can we see, cause I think I have this judgment on my own work. And I mean, you know, that one of my main um, focuses and things I care about is just like, I really want my work to be as strong as it can be. So when mm -hmm. I'm the artist looking at what I've made, I'm like, how do I know if I'm hitting this mark of dedication and awareness? And so I think mm -hmm. these are good measurements and measurements in air quotes, because mm -hmm. it's kind of a funny thing to throw up against artwork, but, um, can I, can I ask you, Devin, like, yeah. when have you felt like something's worked? What, what does that look like? Is it like, oh my gosh, it's clicked. Is it, is it like an aha moment like that? Or is it a lot less like glamorous and kind of a bit more like, oh, I'll put this aside and sit with it for several days. And then maybe I'm like, you know, no, I like that. Is that how, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, it's definitely not the first one. Um, I mean, yeah, what's coming to mind for me is the body of work I've been working on, which I think has been taking me the absolute longest and has mm -hmm. been the most trying because I'm trying to do new things and improve my skills and working with compositions that I'm not comfortable with, but the pieces that are finished, which are very few, um, I think are probably some of my favorites that I've done, which 
kind of points to a theme I, I was pulling out in everything you were saying with dedication and awareness. I'm like, so really there's a lot of time in here. Yeah. Like in order to have through lines and to have failed artwork, you have to been have been doing it for a decent amount of time to ha- even have those things. You got it. It's it's kind of funny when we say it out loud because you're like, oh, turns out you just need to do a ton of it. There's just no secret. That's that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. And experimentation into other methods. And I like what you said there because one, um, I think you mentioned like, what is something that I, I see as a weakness often in, or maybe a stumbling point mm-hmm. in artists, uh, in some of the artists I see. And a big one is that kind of a focus on trying to get a style or cohesive look, which of course is, yeah, the goal that it makes them sort of tunnel visioned. And then there is no experimentation or, or study into other methods, other styles, education, other fields. Like I always encourage artists to take a class in in something completely different, just to open up that and, and exercise that part of the brain. And maybe Mm -hmm. that will come into the work in another way, but going into those uncomfortable spots is something really important. And that's actually something we can physically see. Like, that's why I want to see like the bad stuff. You know, I want to see the the things that didn't work. Totally. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was going to circle back around to that, like the, the stumbling points that you Mm -hmm. witness. Um, so it seems like some sort of restriction, or rigidity around like going into something uncomfortable and new and experimenting because they're trying to like gear after a certain result, which is like cohesion and uniqueness. Yeah. yeah. And like looking like they, I think, you know, a lot of artists spend a lot of time on Instagram and they see a real certain look to certain artists work. It's very cohesive and it's looks like the same thing and that they've really got their style down mm-hmm. pat. And while that's super important and yes, while that is something that I do think that a lot of emerging artists kind of lack, which is they're trying a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. Um, it's true. Like you do need to kind of pick the best and focus and oftentimes uh, an artist who's mid-career or like a little bit above emerging can get really trapped with that because, and truly that what will happen is they'll exhaust whatever they're doing and kind of burn out. And I've seen it many times before because they were trying so hard to to tighten up and figure out that one style that they're going to do over and over and over again for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And we always have to be we always have to kind of allow for like a little bit of experimentation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about kind of like holding that, you know, I think of a basketball in your hand, like you want to hold it loose enough that you can still like move around, bounce it, do whatever you need to do with it, but you don't want somebody to steal it from you either. So you have to have like a firm hold on it, not too firm. I like that kind of middle ground analogy because I was also thinking about Um, I wonder if there's a flip side to this, like the art. And I I almost think I might fall into the second category. If it is a category of, um, constantly experimenting and then feeling like you you want to mask. Don't fall into that category (laughs) at all. (laughs) Okay. We'll get to know. No, the the second category would be like, oh, now you've decided you want to try some sculpture, but you're also really into photography and maybe (laughs) encaustic work. And you like to do landscapes, but you like to do hyper-realist portraits. And, you know, you want to do graphic drawings of anatomy, but at the same time, you're also doing abstract 
uh, splatter painting. Like that's what I'm talking about. Okay. That's all over the place. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. But you can venture within your own realm, like, and even step a bit outside of it, but not just like pure chaos. (laughs) I think like do things in totally other realms, but you don't have to show everyone. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't have have to be part of your body of work. Yeah, exactly. Like if I asked you, Devin, to do, to take like a life drawing class on the side, like, I think that you would benefit from it in some way, but we might not actually see it and we don't Mm. need to see it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I like to keep this in mind, this balance between like not focusing so hard on cohesion, but then not being like so chaotic and having totally. to show everything either. With your practice, you yeah. don't, you don't have to worry about getting too chaotic. I'll just tell you that now. Okay. Like you're in the zone. You're, you're in the ballpark, okay. you know, you're in like the stadium mm-hmm. and you might be playing baseball on the side, but you know, over here you're like doing CrossFit stuff, like, but we're <laughs> still in the same stadium. It's the same yeah. field. That's true. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Okay. okay I'm doing all these sports metaphors. I feel so sporty. <laughs> yeah. I'm very not sporty. <laughs> Neither am I. Okay. When you said CrossFit, I was like, well, this is clearly just hypothetical. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I've heard of that word. I'll put I'll yeah. use that one. <laughs> hey, y'all. We'll get back to the episode in just a minute. Uh, but first, I want to talk to you about selling framed prints of your work to your collectors in the absolute easiest way possible. And that is by using the Frame It Easy Shopify app. So this is a total game changer for how you sell prints. First of all, I already love Frame It Easy frames. They're where I already refer my collectors. And now with this app, all you have to do is upload the digital file of your work and Frame It Easy takes care of everything else. They'll provide the size options, the styles, and they'll ship it right to your collector's door with your own branding on it and everything. How cool is that? To get started, all you have to do is set up your Shopify store and search Frame It Easy within the Shopify app to install it. Then you upload the file of the work you want to sell and that's it, you're done. And just for being a listener of this show, you can get $100 towards sample frames, what? By going to frameiteasy.com backslash artmagic, also in the show notes. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Okay. So kind of a bridge off of like strengthening our artwork. I know something that you also talk about is strengthening the quote unquote meat and potatoes of one's work. Yeah. I talk about that a lot. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's very important. And I remember the first time I heard you talk about it, something really clicked for me. Mm. Um, but then I ventured to work on it and, uh, it's helped a lot. Um, and it's also not extremely easy. So I kind of just wanted to to unpack that a little bit. So for people who don't know what that is, could you like just give us a meat and potatoes overview when it comes to one's artwork? Sure. Yeah. So just that, you know, the metaphor of meat and potatoes is usually um, what fo- people talk about when they say something filling, like something um, bulk, bulk filling and easy and, and that sort of thing. Well, the meat and potatoes and work, I think is about um, finding the substance in your work and that often is made up of like the concept theme or message behind your work within it that gives it that kind of starchy meaty filling you know goodness again whether you're a vegetarian or not uh, or low carb 
I think that uh, you need that kind of bulking, that energy, um, sus like the sustenance behind the work, the guts. Um, so, and figuring that out is a, is a tough thing to do. For some artists, it's completely the other way around, I will say, like for a fair number of my highly conceptual artists, clients, there it's the other way around. It's technique and substance mm. is, is coming in leaps and bounds, but the technique is lacking severely. And for other artists, their technique is uh, totally on point. Um, but what they're talking about needs work. It's fluffy, fluffy. It's like the iceberg lettuce salad dressing on the side. Like, so, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be filling. It's not yeah. right. Um, or it's like the bag of chips where it's like good. And it's like great at the beginning and all that stuff, but ultimately not lasting. Mm -hmm. So that's the meat and potatoes. That's what that means. Okay. So it's interesting. You actually did mention something that I hadn't thought about somebody who might be highly conceptual, but their technique needs work. So I like thinking about how technique might be the other, the other side of that. Um, 100%. Yeah. They have mm -hmm. like great ideas and they feel completely and utterly paralyzed by how to execute it, how to yeah. visually manifest it, because they have these really um, deep concepts. And like, frankly, usually something that's like near and dear to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And when something's like, when something's near and dear to you, it becomes harder and harder to kind of execute. And I think that's why it's quite hard to, to figure out the meat and potatoes, because for somebody who's technical now, now you're trying to insert mm. the feeling back in mm -hmm. or, or put it into words, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for those who might be weaker in the meat mm -hmm. and potatoes department, um, I guess it's kind of two parts. Like, why do you think that is, or what do you notice? Which you kind of answered a little bit already. Um, and then why is it so important for them to develop? Like, what are they going to need this for? And like, how can it help their work? Sure. So the reason why I think it's like missing or why it's so commonly, um, a person's stumbling block is because possibly it's because that there's this, I feel like in the art world, there's often this focus on technique, at least in, in some things, not, not in all, but, um, and when you focus on technique for so long, especially if you, if you did go to art school and, and even if you didn't, you're, you're trying to learn these materials, materials. So you're trying to figure it out. You do it again and again, just like that dedication portion we were talking about. Right. And then you kind of get there and you figure out how to do your thing really well. And you're like, Oh crap. Like now I have to find a meaning behind this or why I'm doing it. So I think like lots of times the reason why it's not there is because there's such this, this heavy focus for so long on this one thing. And we kind of get there and we're like, Oh, I forgot about why. And then, and then I think it's just an unexercised part of the the, the mind and the practice, that's what happens that you're like, oh, shoot, now, now I have to open that door and go into that. And that's really difficult if you haven't been actively keeping it up. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that. And what was your, the second question was? Oh, just like why it's so important to develop, which I mean, oh, you yes. already touched on a little bit, but if there's anything else you wanted to add. Sure. I think that, you know what, um, it's important for you as an artist, just to figure out why the heck you're doing this in general, I think that that's always an important thing. And when you have something sort of 
on paper written down that gives you a, somewhere to go to and something to reference. From a practical other standpoint, it also helps straight up with curators, collectors, your audience to know what the hell is happening, especially if your work is possibly something that's a little bit more open to interpretation, mm-hmm. like abstract work, right? You know all about that. And then so basically it you don't you're not giving them everything necessarily because you want people to bring their own ideas to the table, but you're giving them a bit of a some insight, a a guidebook into what your thoughts were behind this this particular series. Another benefit I think is to help you as an artist separate out various series and then kind of actually be able to have a barometer to see whether or not you're growing. Yeah. And reacting to the world around you. And I think that's important as well. So for this particular series, I was really interested and focused on this. And now I'm really interested and focused on this. I, yes, I'm still taking some aspects of that, but I've changed as one always should. The world has changed as it does. And I'm reacting to that. So it's just kind of this way of um, organizing your thoughts. And ultimately, that should reflect in better work. Mm-hmm. And it does too. And I like what you said about um, if you've been working on technique for so long, it can feel difficult to start exercising this other part of the brain. And um, yeah, I can even relate to that myself is like, if you've never thought about your work in that way, at least actively, it can feel a bit unnatural. Like you're superimposing something. Yes. Um, But that's actually maybe in retrospect, not actually what's happening. Like, yes. I think that the meaning always has been there. It's not necessarily a superficial act. It's just that you might not be used to thinking about it in that 100%. way. 100%. It takes an yeah. adjustment. <laughs> 100%. It, it seems contrived. And yeah. I think that, like I always tell folks when, when we do these various exercises, like some of the ones I've done with you, Devin, that like it should feel almost like you're like bullshitting a little bit. I don't know if I can say that. Can I say yeah, that? you can. Oh yeah, I, I say, okay. I say all kinds of things on here. Okay. <laughs> Um, and that's okay. Like, in fact, I kind of want you to do that because that is also a creative part of, you know, you're doing something creative with like, as you should, with all work, you should come up with meaning that may Mm. not be there. That's, that's another completely different part of making artwork, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So you should really be, and, and you're right. Like it often does like what I make up about that thing about this piece is going to be very different from what you make up about it and I you're the one who did it so yours is going to be more legitimate so I do think there's this kind of feeling of this is completely contrived but at the same time there's some authenticity because it does come from you and it was always there Mm -hmm. yeah and I think too it's like once you get over that initial hump then from there on out, you can't not thinking about, think about that in your work. Exactly. So yeah. there's like a, a snowball effect that happens, but totally. initially when you start working with it, um, yeah, I can have that contrived feeling. Yeah. Because yeah. you're doing it like retroactively, you're going mm-hmm. back and saying, oh, this means this, right. But now going forward, this actually does mean that. Mm-hmm. So you're assigning meaning to yeah. it. Exactly. So for those who might be listening to this and they want to bulk up the meat and potatoes slash meaning and substance in their work, what tips do you have for getting started? Like what can people start to ask themselves? Do they need to research? Do they need to like, where do they start? Sure. It's difficult without seeing 
the work specifically, but I do think it always helps to build what I call like a visual vocabulary, mm-hmm. um, which is like a glossary of recurring images, concept, uh, excuse me, recurring images, uh, symbols, colors, textures in the work um, and assigning meaning to them. Like we just said, and kind of creating this dictionary of sorts, this dictionary of terms um, and assigning meaning to them. So creating the visual vocabulary and using it. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to kind of that exercise, but I think most generally that that's a good place to begin. The second thing may be to do like a, an artist statement exercise. And there's lots and lots of different ones out there. Um, one of the ones I would recommend um, includes sort of a breakdown of the various things in your work. And an important one of those breakdown aspects is like your point of view. What about you made this work happen? In other words, so if you were, if both you and I were asked to paint a sunset landscape over the Rocky Mountains, and that was what we were going to do, what I would do would be completely different from what you would do. And why is that? So just really diving deep into like, what was it, is it about you and your life and how you've been raised or where you grew up or what you're surrounded by that informs this kind of artwork that you're making? Is it being um, an American? Is it being a woman? Is it being a woman of a particular age? Is it that you're a mother? Is it that um, you, you're, you've always been conscious about uh, the environment, for example? Is it that you are a nature lover? Is it that, that you have always been a maker in other ways? Is it that you're the daughter or son or child of a maker? This is just various kinds of ideas, those, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. But that list should be long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it helps, again, to have like a bit of kind of guidance or a push on those kinds of questions. But they're all there. Yeah. Everything that you've ever done in your life has informed the work that you choose to make in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really not until you start asking that question specifically that you might start to see like the ties and the, I think between those two exercises that you brought up the glossary and then questioning your own point of view, um, like you start to see things that are reoccurring like over and over and over. And I think that was the biggest clue for me is it's like, oh, clearly this thing is present in these answers in many ways. And that was like a big indicator for me. And did, yeah. did we do the point of view exercise? I think we brought it up in regards to talking about the artist statement. So we touched on it. Um, okay. We touched on like the medium, the tone, the style. Yes. Point of view. Yes, yes, yes. And can I ask what were some of your point of view answers? Yeah, definitely. Um, being a woman was yeah. a big one. And then, um, my age in the sense that I grew up in the nineties, cause my work is very much about like nostalgia and childhood. Um, and then I'm still figuring out how to word this exactly, but something in regards to being a survivor of trauma mm-hmm. is very, I prevalent. think that that those are the words. Those are good yeah. words. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still like, is it survivor? Is it this, you know, but like for the sake of conversation, I think that, you know, points to it. 
Um, those feel like my main things. I don't know yeah. if I've ventured too far outside of those, but those feel like the most relevant. Mm-hmm. And how about choosing just painting as a medium? Where does that, in your point of view, come from? Like, why did I choose painting? Yeah. Yeah, it's a what good about question. about you made you choose painting? Put me on the spot here. Yeah, no, you know, this is just a no, hype. But this like, is you good. think about it later. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm totally fine to answer it. Okay. Um, but I have to think about it. Why did I choose painting? I mean, in one sense, I think there's a accessibility factor. Um, like, because I am self-taught, it was something that, like, I could enter at a low cost. I could figure out myself. So that's, like, the beginning of that story. And yeah. I think, so I think that another yeah. one of your point of view uh, tags would be mm-hmm. self-taught. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Self-taught. Oh, this is a good segue because we're talking about <laughs> being self-taught next. I love it. Okay. okay but yeah. Great. <laughs> Let's slide right into it. Then. Let's just Let's slide right in. Okay. But that was helpful. I, I think that's a good question for everyone. Like, why did you choose your given medium? Because that can like give answers too. And I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd, I thought about how my medium lends to the meaning of my work, but not why within my own journey, I had chosen it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I also want to say like for many out there, if you're struggling, maybe that medium is not your medium. Mm. And there's some other method of which your message could be better delivered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just putting that out there because there are so many other things that um, from sound to video to text-based work, performance, time-based installation, installation, Mm -hmm. uh, new media, like just other things that we don't know about because, and it it maybe isn't just as popular because um, two-dimensional work is often kind of driven, pushed, Mm -hmm. and it's great. It just isn't the only thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about dabbling in installation myself, which, yeah. uh, is a whole other topic <laughs> or animation with your work. Yeah. Like that would be. Oh yeah. The only thing is, is that I'm not, and this is, I think an interesting topic too. It's like, uh, enjoyability versus it versus what might be conducive to your work. And I feel like there's a balance there. Like, and animation might be so conducive, but I would like hate having to do all of my art on a computer. Well, I, and here's the thing. I don't think you would be the one doing it. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like saying like, oh, I like, I love driving, but I hate having to work on the car. Like I hate having to, you wouldn't be working on the car, you know? Okay. That's good to know. So, okay. That's good food for thought. Yeah. And then also to just comment on like switching up the medium, um, and this emphasis on 2d work I've heard from so many artists. And I think that this is very common is that painting is very like anxiety provoking more so than, uh, well, performance would be anxiety provoking for me in another way. Um, but possibly more so than like sculpture or sewing or these other things. Um, there's something about painting that can be very, like drive up your inner critic. And so I've heard from a lot of artists that when they've switched to a more freeing medium, it, it was like so right for them. So just, just adding that to, if you're feeling anxiety. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something about this white box in front of you mm-hmm. that needs to become something and should be, could be something epic. And it's extremely overwhelming and that there's a <laughs> beginning and that there's an end. Like mm-hmm. there's, it's, there's just a lot of uh, anxiety inducing parameters 
about painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really helped me. Like I've, you know, in part of what I've considered to be experimental for myself, like I've dabbled in sculpture almost just to free myself up. And then I've returned to painting because I do think it, it feels right for me, but I have needed the breaks from the anxiety for sure. 100%. And that's again, what I was, you know, to echo earlier when we we're talking about those other classes in a completely different technique or media, like mm-hmm. that's, I think that's about kind of opening up those other sides and feeling a little bit more free and then coming back to the thing that you choose to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. I want to jump on that segue about being self-taught. Yes. Back to that segue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the natural segue. <laughs> Um, do you, okay. First of all, do you work with a lot of self-taught artists is, do you feel that that's common? Do you feel like yeah, you work? More I do. With one or I the do. Other? Um, no, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like there it's, uh, I work with, uh, more than one or the other, but I will say, I, I suppose just off the top of my head, at least 40, 40%. Okay. And that's 40% of, you know, a thousand artists we see a year. So that's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Uh, probably more than people think. So mm-hmm. Um, so in working with self-taught artists, mm-hmm. um, I have a lot of questions here, but I guess yeah. the first one would just be around, do you notice an insecurity and what kind of advice do you give to self-taught artists who feel insecure about their self-taughtness and their work being on par with like their educated peers? Sure. To answer your question first. Yes. I constantly, <laughs> constantly get, um, artists who have stumbling blocks around being self-taught and huge inner critic anxieties about not having gone to art school. It's something that they lead with. It's something that they write on their form to me. It's something that they start talking about when we first begin talking. It is something like that. I feel like looms over their head, like a dark cloud all the time. And I think if I was, you know, a clinical counselor I'd be much better at sort of addressing that but truly my I always address in the same way which is like you got to get over it because nobody cares about about that except you Mm. truly it's just this invisible thing that you're so worried about that nobody else gives two shits about yeah. And, and I, again, I, whenever I say this very sweeping kind of answer, somebody is like, well, I went to this function one time and everybody there was educated and they made <laughs> me feel bad or something. Like, I feel like that's quite rare. I do. Most of the time people don't know. And if the work is good, people don't care. Mm, yeah. That's it. I will say a couple other things in, I'm not, I'm not slamming art school. I think it's incredibly important and fantastic in its own right, mm-hmm. but feeling inadequate or less than because you didn't go to art school, isn't something that I think exists except in one's own mind. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel that way? Wait a minute. No, you, you went to art school. So no, I didn't. Oh I'm no, you did not. Okay. Hence the segue. Right. Right. <laughs> Right. My mistake. Hence the segue, hence yeah. the natural segue. Yeah. Um, and do you, do you feel that way? And, and do you feel like people have made you feel bad because of it? No, nobody. I think it's a thing that the self-taught artists talk about amongst themselves. It's like, it exists 
within us and then like with each other. Um, but I have not gone out and had that. Like, like you haven't been standing in a room and then five other highly educated artists have like pointed at you no. and said like, you're an imposter. Ha ha. No, no, it's anything. actually, it's usually me outing myself. Like if <laughs> exactly. I'm in that scenario, I'm like, by the way, everyone, I want you to know that I'm probably less than you. <laughs> it's like me doing it to myself. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. You'd like doing a glass and yeah. say, there's some unsolicited, solicited information. I'm self-taught. Yeah. And everybody I've ever done that to just looks at me like, all right. Good, good for you. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> like, That's what I mean about self-taught yeah. artists seem to be the ones that like, just like, they always lead with it. It's they're, mm-hmm. like, just so, you know, like it's this horrible little secret that they have like, Oh, before we go on, I just want you to know I'm, <laughs> I'm self-taught. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things, ways to get over that I think is uh, one that you do need to find other ways to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can't, that's the only way to make it go away. Okay. And as, and for those who did go to art school, you still need to do that. Guess what? Like, this is not a one and done. You got your piece of paper. See you later. Everybody needs to continue to be on top of, as I said, the, the wokeness, the canon that you're in and sort of figuring out other artists that you like. And guess what? A lot of artists that you don't like, I want to, I want to hear them both. Mm. And I do find that when, artists do their own self-education. They stick to contemporary artists, which is not necessarily something that, or they stick to dead and gone artists, one or the other, right? They just name your, your top five big artists out there and then they don't think anymore about it, you know? Or they pick people who are other Instagrammers like, and, and, they don't know the history that that comes from. So we need both mm-hmm. as one thing. And another um, common mistake is that they only research artists in their own field, in their mm. own type of, again, in their own type of medium and their own type of style. Um, and again, that's not the be all end all expand. So Earlier when I spoke about even just taking classes, I don't just mean a technique. In fact, I would highly encourage maybe a non-technical class and more perhaps of a theory class. And it's not theory like, oh my God, I'm going back to school. I have to write a report. Like more of a a theory based on interest kind of class, you know, where um, there's presentations that, but there isn't any kind of like, you don't have to do any homework. It's just six classes on, of female American artists, like for painters, for example, that's something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the advice, if you're self-taught is get over your insecurity because you're the only one who has it. And don't shout it from the rooftops. Like when you get into a room. Yeah. I have been working on that. I will say in the past year, I have tried more and more to like I don't announce other random facts about my history. Like yeah. <laughs> I got a C in math. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, hey guys, I'm not great <laughs> at math. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so like, this is just, you know, keep it to yourself unless you're asked. Um, but then also the advice is like, but you should take steps to like understand, you know, the history in the world around you and um, a bit. Yes. And that's how you and counteract it. Totally. And just Basically, I would find a strong reference of living, dead, 
working, non-working artists that you like and don't like and just generally know about. Mm. And I would probably find a really solid list of self-taught artists. And Mm. guess what? There are a lot of them out there. Um, Super famous self-taught artists um, that, you know, you have as kind of just in your mind for you like oh yeah here's here's huge huge Ai Weiwei as an artist or Frida mm-hmm. Kahlo as self-taught artists that did perfectly fine mm-hmm. yeah and I love hearing this too because I know you used to like you mentioned at the beginning you used to work at galleries did you ever like did you ever perk up if you saw a self-taught artist or like yeah what was that experience like on the curator's end yeah so I will tell you this I well, we of course have the CVs and bios of all of our artists and they were, they're all really successful artists. It was a very good gallery as well. Um, and all the galleries, however, could I tell you what, if they, I couldn't tell you if they mm-hmm. went to art school or not. I don't remember. I don't care. And no one has ever come in and say, said, like bought a, wanted to buy a piece and said, well, whoa, 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 where did they get their MFA? <laughs> yeah. Where did they get their BFA? And I'm like, whoa, actually, they actually got a BA and it was in a totally different thing. And they're like, forget it. I'm out of here. That's <laughs> never happened before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's just having said that, like, yes, if you're if you're going and you want to be in Hauser and Worth and you want to do conceptual work, like I do think that if you have had an education from a certain place, it really does help. It's yeah. not it's not this totally useless thing at all. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm curious about like, so besides how it might show up or not show up in your work, the like networking factor, like I think that self-taught artists might have this general sense of like, well, there's people I don't know and exhibitions I haven't gotten. Um, and I'm curious about like how much of that you think is real and then steps you can take to counteract that. 100%. That's a really good point. Um, when you go to art school somewhere, you do build a community. Mm-hmm. And depending on the art school, a lot of those artists go on to do other things, like sometimes big things. And then you're part of that community still, right? Like you kind of grow with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more intense, perhaps, uh, the art school, sometimes the, the greater those artists will rise. And again, you, you, can, you can sort of piggyback off of each other a little bit and mm-hmm. you're ushered into different places through those artists. Having said that, is it necessary to build community only through only by paying $80,000 for it? No, you can find it in other ways, but you have to be active in it, right? So that's, this is perhaps going to openings, joining a collective, being part of an online group, you know, um, and of which there are many out there for networking and connecting mm. with other artists, Right. Yeah. Um, they're all different and for different kinds of things. Um, also, I will say on the flip side, if you do go to, go to art school somewhere else in the world, like many people do, you often will lose touch with a lot of those artists and then there is no community anymore. Mm. So not everyone who goes to art school has this like tight knit group of now famous artists that are part of their ride or die crew, you know? <laughs> Um, because many, many of the time they, it's international, they go somewhere else like myself. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Another thing I wanted to say was, oh, yes, doing a residency often mm. does the same thing. Mm. Often will achieve very similar things where you're meeting with a group and, you know, then it, it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to continue to meet with them yeah. and grow that network. Um, in the end of the day, you have to put yourself out there physically. You have to go to things. All of that is work. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of work no matter what to like upkeep the community to really like make the effort to do the uncomfortable things. For um, sure. And to yeah. be social online and, and not online. Right. Mm-hmm. So all of it is just time. Yeah. It takes to build relationships. It's relationship building like anything else. Yeah. Um, so this is actually a really good segue to my, <laughs> to my next question, um, which is actually about galleries. Um, okay. And so I know for myself and for so many artists that I talk with, it's like, we just want our practice to be financially sustainable. And I'm not sure how much myself or my friends have an attachment to the way that looks. We just want it to be like the most conducive to our practice. And so then I think that kind of gives rise to the question, like, well, what is the most sustainable way? Is it to sell my work myself and keep all the profits? Um, or is it to work with a gallery? And in my mind, sometimes I wonder if galleries can help sell larger pieces. Um, but I guess my question to you is like, what have you seen work best? And then maybe what method would work better for a certain type of artist? Sure. Um, always tough to say again, without seeing the work, cause some work mm. is just truly better suited either to go through the gallery route, the public gallery route, the commercial route, or mm-hmm. to go through a designer or a different way and to be, or self-sold. So, um, I will say first and foremost, it is quite like the work does change that answer quite a bit. Okay. And, um, that plays a big factor. Um, but other things play a factor, like your personality, for example. Do you hate selling? Okay. Do you hate talking about your work and trying to move it and to build those relationships? And is it awkward and weird for you? And for a lot of people, it is. If that's the case, you are you have to go the gallery route or representative route, basically. Somebody else has to do it because it cannot be you. But I always say, if you don't and you do like doing those things, why not do some of the self-selling, mm. you know? And I will say that although when you're starting out as an emerging artist, it is great to sort of pick one of those two, not, I shouldn't say two, one of the paths, there are many, okay? Um, self-selling, commercial gallery, public gallery, designer, uh, representative, there's a lot of different other routes. Um, just so that you can focus your energies, it doesn't mean that it is the only one that you can ever do. Mm. And it doesn't kill all the other ones, basically. Mm-hmm. It's just more like, okay, I always say it's something like, if I, if I say to you, you know, you say to me, I want to go to the Olympics to become a swimmer like a speed swimmer but I also want to go to the Olympics to become a gymnast and focus on like floor routine or something um I'm going to bring in sports again right? yeah I was like I like uh, yeah. the sports theme <laughs> yeah here we go like, first of all becoming an Olympic athlete is a lot of work yeah and am I saying you can't do those two things no but I'm saying should you maybe train for one of those things first because it takes such a different part of your body yeah 
Okay. So that's, that's what this is. Like when you're starting off, it might make sense to say, you know what? I kind of like talking about my work. I like meeting the people behind it. I want to be able to see them and know them when they purchase a piece. I'm going to go the self-selling route. Okay. And then another person might say, no, for me, it's the gallery. I don't care to necessarily know the people who are purchasing my work. For me, I want to make fewer pieces that sell for a higher amount. And that's that. I'm going to go for the gallery. So just kind of focusing on one of those things helps everything else for mm-hmm. now. But it's not to say that that catchment doesn't include possibly both. Yeah. Yeah. Like you take better pictures of your work. You're more likely to sell the work, but you're also more likely to get noticed by galleries. So lots of these things kind of have both. Yeah. Right? They go together. Yeah. They go together. So um, you kind of drive home one, but you're able to catch the others along the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm curious about, like, you kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the answer, which is like the type of work does dictate uh, the best path for you a lot of the time. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little more about the specifics there. Like, how can you identify what kind of work you make? Is it like the bigger, more expensive pieces do better with the gallery, the more conceptual pieces? How, how do you kind of yeah, that? Sure. So I think that like, if your, if your work is, you know, more conceptual, let's say, and it isn't more like, let's say aesthetically easily pleasing to the masses, I suppose, then mm-hmm. yes, you might need to go the public gallery route, right. Which is different than commercial gallery route. Mm-hmm. That is to be acquired by museums, different sorts of things like that, showing in non-for-profit spaces, academic spaces, uh, government grants, this sort of thing. Okay. Um, if your work is, uh, it like just takes, frankly, like a, quite a long time to produce it, uh, but you're still able to chip away at it. It's generally larger, this sort of thing. It needs to sell for a higher price point. Then yes, maybe you also should consider commercial gallery for that. Um, and again, if, if it's just something that requires more of a needing to see it in person mm. aspect, if you're making work quickly and, um, you don't feel like a preciousness to it. So first of all, I don't recommend anybody feel that precious about their work just off right off the bat. However, if you uh, are quite prolific, um, you like engaging with an audience you're happy to produce more and have it move faster, perhaps self-selling is the route for you. Mm, Okay. Yeah. It also helps to say like, okay, let's look at the year. How many pieces, like if you're a Mm self-seller, how many pieces did I sell? Okay. I sold 10 pieces at a thousand dollars each. I sold $10,000 worth of work, let's say last year. Would I have given 5,000 of that away to a gallery? Was, Mm -hmm. Was it worth that? It's going to be the same people buying it, by the way, like for now. That was going to be my question. Yeah, Yeah, it'd still be the people that you advertise to, maybe, right? However, Mm -hmm. they're taking care of all the administration. They're taking care of all the taxes and all those kinds of things. Um, And you have this nice kind of looking space um, to show in. Great. Like, was it that worth $5,000 half to you, right? And that's not to say next year, maybe some of them are your people but some of them are theirs. And then that grows and grows and grows. But for now you're doing pretty well, let's say Mm self-selling. Most people are coming from you. You're, you're the one who's um, you're ahead of the gallery in this, in this scenario. Is that worth it to you? Mm -hmm. 
So these are the things to sort of ask yourself when, when trying to figure out where to go. Yeah. That's, I think a main question that I just have personally, when you feel quote unquote ahead of the gallery, as you put it for now, I think that, I think you kind of confirmed what I was thinking is like, well, is the gallery going to bring me a bunch of new people? Cause if they're not, it's probably not worth it. <laughs> sure. Or yeah. are they located in a new place? Yeah. And I don't have those people, for example. Yeah. Right. Then mm-hmm. I'm sending the work there and I'm paying for shipping, which will be a lot. And, but that's a whole new audience of people. Maybe I don't have. So perhaps mm-hmm. it is work. And these are all the pros and cons to weigh. And it helps to sort of weigh them with somebody else or perhaps another artist that is at that gallery and just kind of doing your due diligence and figuring out and weighing the options. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think that it is a scenario that if somebody does transition over to a gallery, um, that they then see new buyers from that gallery over time? Or do you yeah. feel that artists usually bring their own buyers? It depends on how well-known the gallery is and how well-known mm-hmm. the artist is, right? Those are two mm. huge variables. But um, the gallery is trying to, I mean, they want to bring in new buyers. They want, right. they're not working against you. Of course. They, of they're course. working with you. So that yeah. is the goal for them always. Mm. Now, whether or not they're able to hustle as often as you are is a really different story because you're completely dedicated to your work, whereas they have perhaps a roster of 50 artists that they also have to rotate in and out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the physical like brick and mortar gallery space is, you know, that's not as valuable as it used to be. However, to many artists, as I said, even those who like their work needs to be sort of seen in person a lot more, mm-hmm. it's still a huge benefit to them to have that physical space. They might be located in somewhere that's kind of remote, right? Like the mm-hmm. artist. And so having it go through a gallery is almost crucial. There's no other way. Yeah. All such good factors to think about. And I think I know for myself, I've been at different points with this question at different times and it like changes as you change and as the work changes. And, um, so the factors are always changing for sure. And you're in one of those situations, I think Devin, where like you, what we said about the things that you're doing could bring in both things, like could bring in both the gallery and Mm self-selling at this point. So if you're doing one, you're still open to the others. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. I think openness is always good, especially when you're an artist and you 100%. Yeah. yeah. Make me an offer. Really. That's what we're trying to say. Right. So if a, mm. a good gallery comes along and they make you an offer, then we'll address that at that time. Yeah. Then we'll call Penny Lane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll do the pros and cons and we'll see whether or not they're, they're frankly good enough for, for the work. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So much food for thought in like all of these questions and answers, I do kind of want to somehow tie like a nice pretty bow on it, if that's possible. Okay, <laughs> um, go for it, definitely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess that question would just be, like, do you have any lasting advice for artists who are wanting to improve their work and want to sell more of their work? So I guess that could be like in the work department or in the selling department, but is there anything that comes to you that you're just like, keep this in mind as you're working away? at this thing that you love? Sure. This is perhaps not like a nice, beautiful bow. This is like a 
twine, a piece of twine, you know, that would tie on top. This is pretty (laughs) rough, but I would say, you know, for artists, it's, it's important to let people behind the scenes Mm. of your, of your practice. And if you are not good at that, like you just don't remember to take pictures or whatever it may be, or write about your work and share it, then you must get somebody else to do it for you. So don't be afraid to outsource things that you're not good at because you cannot be good at everything. Yeah. So if capturing good images of, let's say you and your work or whatever it may be, it's just, you don't have that equipment. You don't have the lights. You don't have, get somebody to do it for you. If running the social media, for example, is just something you don't care about, like, and, and you're not good at, get somebody to do that for you. It's easier said than done. And of course it costs money, but let me tell you, like, this is investing in yourself. You don't have to do it all. It's again, back to like, you like driving, but you don't have to be able to fix the car. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that. And I mean, yeah, no, I love that. The twine I'm into the twine, letting people into the behind the scenes. I think it is so important. And it's, I think it's important to remember that it's important because you can get so caught up in making the work and doing all these other things that that does tend to be the thing that gets put on the back burner. But I like that you're bringing it to the front and you're like, no, if you're doing this, uh, this is what I see that's needed. And yeah, yeah, I like that. It's there's so there's so much emphasis on final product, final product, final product that we Mm. kind of uh, we're just in a different time and it requires sharing the journey. Yeah. A little more people like it. Mm-hmm. They do like it. It's true. Yeah. People like it. Let them see it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, for, I know people are definitely going to work with you after this and want to, um, I can't recommend it enough. So where can people find you and what are you up to? Anything you want to share? Sure. Yeah. Um, Upcoming things, I will be uh, a guest uh, instructor for the NYC Crit Club. Mm, this, I saw that. Yeah, this this spring. So that's starting next week um, for up until uh, July. Um, we're doing speed crits with different guests that we're bringing in, and I'm really excited about that. I'm also doing a talk for the Artist Mother Retreat. That's yeah, that's happening as well in June and um, also working with the Opus Art Supplies again to do some to focus on photographing your artwork and different kind of seminars around um, basically digital and photography. Uh, That's with my business partner, David Ellingson, who's the other consultant at Days of Confucius. So you can find us at daysandconfucius.com or on Instagram at days.and.confucius. Awesome. We will definitely link to all of those things. And thank you so much for coming on and just for doing what you do. You're like a definite gift to artists. So thank you. That's so nice to say. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Oh, such a big thanks to Penny Lane for coming on the show and um, just doing what she does in the world for artists. I just really can't say enough how much I appreciate her. So if you would like to check her out and what she's up to, all of the links for that are in the show notes, as well as a place where you can book a session with her if your heart so desires. 
If you would like to support the Art and Magic podcast, the best ways to do so are, one, over on Patreon. Um, The support I receive over there really goes right back into keeping this show up and running, and every dollar is so appreciated. Um, But you can also support the show in free ways. One of the biggest ways is by leaving us a review on the Apple Podcast app. So if you're listening, you just scroll down, hit the five stars if you feel so inclined, and tell us what you're loving about the show. Um, Those reviews really go a long way and I celebrate each and every one. Um, You can also share the episode you're listening to over on Instagram and don't forget to tag us at Art and Magic. It really is how artists like yourself can find the show and enjoy the episodes that you're also enjoying. So thank you so much for being here. That wraps up our show for today. And until next time, I'm sending you lots of love and tons of magic.